0: Thank you, Mark. Well, good morning. Uh, As you are turning in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, I want to share with you an excerpt from a profound theological work, a song written by acclaimed lyricist Randall Goodgame. Ever heard of him? and performed on the cinematic masterpiece, The Slugs and Bugs Show. Have you guys heard of it? All right, I was hoping some of you had heard of it so you would sing along with me. But I'm going to sing with you for you a little excerpt of this song. He sings, the song is based on Philippians 2, 3, which was our text last week, and the song is called Above Yourself. It goes a little something like this. Are you ready? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourself. Got it? All right, now, hold on, it doesn't end there. Now you got a picture in your mind, you got to be creative. You got to picture a really cute firefly who is on the Slugs and Bugs show, and a couple of raccoons, and I'm going to sing both parts since you guys don't know it. You can join in if you do. But that the firefly and the raccoon sing the echo, okay? So I'm going to sing the part, and then I'm going to sing the echo. So it goes, above yourself, you first, you first. Above yourself, no, please, after you. Value others, I don't mind, you go ahead. Above yourself, no, really, it's my pleasure, after you. What do you think? All right, I gave it my best shot. So Randall goes on in the song to give some practical and convicting applications. He sings about uh, not taking the biggest cookie on the plate, uh, sharing it, things like that. But the point is clear. The point is clear in the song. um, And Paul has been really clear in this current section of his letter to the Philippians. Others first, always. If you're taking notes, maybe write that down. Others first, always. Others first, always. The realistic response, though, to that mandate, to that command, is how? How do we live that way, knowing our selfish ambitions, our me-first mentality, and the reality that we live in a culture that champions my best life now? In that kind of culture, knowing our fallen, sinful selves, how can we realistically and sustainably live a life characterized by others first, always. How can we live a life where we do nothing? Pastor Stephen emphasized that last week, too. Nothing from rivalry or conceit. Well, thankfully, Paul has not been silent on the how. He gives us yet another command in our text that we're going to read together here in a moment in verse 5, but then he follows that command by graciously painting for us a picture of the highest model for us to follow and the most miraculous means, emphasis on model and means, by which we can live out our high Calling. Specifically, he points us in these coming verses to who? Jesus. Right? It's the Sunday school answer, but it's such a good answer. He points us to Jesus, the model and the means of others first, always living. So, if you would, hopefully you found Philippians 2 by now. If you would stand with me, we're going to read last week's text um, and also this week. We're going to read Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Together, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing, Paul writes, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here starts our text for today. Verse 5. Have this mind Let's pray. Father, help us. Oh, Father, help us understand this high calling. Give us wisdom and trust and confidence, not in ourselves, but in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So the gospel transforms everything. Amen? That is the title of our sermon series through Philippians because it's the bottom line of the whole letter. It doesn't mean it's the only thing in the whole letter, but it is the bottom line of this letter Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, that the gospel transforms everything. And today we're going to see the apostle Paul drill down into that reality, that the gospel can and should and must, can and should and must transform the way Christians relate to one another. Me and Mark didn't talk, but that prayer, that pastoral prayer he prayed was just spot on for today. It's The gospel transforms the way we relate to one another within the church. But Paul is also going to show us how, amen, how the transformation happens. He doesn't just tell us what to do, he tells us how it's possible. And we have to remember the context in which Paul is writing. He's not writing to children, learning to share the last cookie, although that is a helpful and faithful application for this text. Rather, he's writing to a church, like all churches, like our church even, who has to navigate from time to time relational discord, and who must, in the midst of that, through the gospel, remain united and living together with an other's first, always mentality. So let's dig in to verses five through eight and see what God has for us. You guys in? All right. Uh, Number one, three points today. Um, Three points. Number one, Being in Christ and looking at Christ changes everything. Being in Christ and looking at Christ changes everything. Look back at verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So first, a little overview. Being in Christ. Do you remember how this letter to the Philippians started way back in chapter 1, verse 1? Paul says, this letter is written to all the saints who are what? Yeah, Yeah, that wasn't a trick question. All the saints who are in Christ Jesus. This is huge to understand, church family. Paul is writing to Christians who, even though they are in the geographical location of what city? Philippi. Their location spiritually is where? In Christ. Geographically in Philippi, but he's writing to the people in Philippi who are positionally in Christ. From the moment of their salvation, just like from the moment of your salvation, everything had changed. All the things that were previously either undesirable or impossible, now that they are in Christ, become desirable and actually become possible because they are in Christ. And don't miss this. Christ is in them. The Spirit of Christ is in them. So they are in Christ, being in Christ, but they're also called to look at Christ. He's saying, you're empowered to live this way because I'm in you and you're in me, or because Christ is in you and Christ is in, uh, and you are in Christ, but I'm also showing you how to live, and I'm telling you the way that you do that is to look at Christ. He's the model. Be in awe of him. Are you in awe of the way Jesus lived his life? Live like him, Paul is saying. Walk in his footsteps, follow him. And so with this in mind, being in Christ and looking at Christ, that that changes everything. Notice again how verse five begins. Paul writes, have this mind. More precisely, he says, have this mentality. What mentality? What mentality? What mentality is he talking about? Well, Paul is referencing verses three and four that we just read and that Pastor Stephen preached on last week, the command to live others first, always. That's the mindset of a Christian. That's so simple and yet so hard, isn't it? If you are a Christian, that must be your mindset. And the reason is simple. It's because it was the mindset of Christ. We're going to give some examples, but just let your mind start to wander. How often does a preacher tell you to do that? Let your mind start to wander for a minute about all the things that you know of how Christ lived. That was his mentality. Others first, always. And then the second half of verse 5, it's kind of an interesting verse uh, because it serves as a transition from the commands of verses 1 through 5 to this incredibly beautiful hymn that I'm sure most of us are familiar with in verses 6 through 11. And this hymn uh, was probably sung by early Christians in the early church, um, but there's debate over how to translate the second half of verse five. So let me give you a little bit of a behind the curtains look of how I prepare a sermon. Um, when I go uh, into my office to prepare a, st- a sermon, the very first thing I do is read the text and then I pray and ask God for help. And side note, that's a good way to approach any time you open God's word. Is that how you approach God's word? Whether it's in your personal devotional time, um, students, kids in the room, you can read God's God's word and you can understand it if you pray and ask for His help. That's the starting point for how we approach sermon preparation, Bible study, devotional time, conversation with your family, parents, read the text, pray and ask for help. Too simple? It's, it's not too simple, and it's so powerful. But then I usually uh, spend some time uh, opening five to six different English translations of the Bible and just read the same text, just to see if there's any significant differences in the way the translators have translated a particular verse. And verse five of Philippians chapter two, there is a significant difference that jumps off the page if you read. Some of you may even have a different translation that you're following along with uh, from what I I read today, and there's differences in how it's translated. Now, at this point, you are thinking, Pastor Bobby, who cares, <laughs> right? You're getting a little bit too far in the weeds. Why does this matter? Well, let me, uh, let me offer up to you that I think that this matters because meaning matters, meaning matters in all contexts, but especially when it comes to reading God's word. And depending on how you translate the second half of verse 5, a verse that in the Greek has no verb, therefore we have to, in our English translation, supply the verb as best we can based on the context of the text. Depending on how you supply the verb, the meaning changes. So that matters, right? So we have to go, what is the correct meaning? Well, hang with me here, um, because it will affect how we approach this others first always mentality. So let me just give you two examples. Have I totally lost you already? Are you hanging with me? Let me give you two examples. These aren't the only examples, but let me give you two translations. The first we already read, it's from the ESV. That's uh, the English standard version that we often use here. And this is how verse five reads. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. There's the verb which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so there we get this idea of means. You know what I mean when I say means? This is how it's gonna happen. How you have the mind of Christ Jesus is because it's already yours if you're in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? But if you're a great nerdy Bible reader, you'll notice that there's probably a footnote attached to that verse. And if you look down, you'll probably see the other optional translation. And I'm just gonna give you an example from the New King James Version, where it would read, let this mind be in you, so kind of the same thing, let this mind be in you, which was also, there's the verb, in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the difference? ESV, which is yours in Christ Jesus. New King James Version, which was also in Christ Jesus. So in that translation, we get the model, right? So one translation is going, okay, the means. I'm in Christ, therefore this mindset is mine. The other one is the model. Christ Jesus had this model. Look at him. Follow him. So which is correct? Anybody want to take a stand? No, don't take a stand right now. Which is, I don't know. That's a, that's a, faithful. Godly biblical scholars translate it both ways. Uh, I don't know which is correct. We can ask God or the Apostle Paul when we get to heaven. But here's the good news. Are you ready for the good news of this? that both of these translations are theologically true. So taking the time to do a little bit of study helps us get a fuller, richer meaning of the text. So whichever translation you read, and better yet, if you look at both, you will read the theological reality that the way we live others first always is only possible if we're in Christ and if we look to Christ. Does that make sense? So after all that, we need both because biblically we read the whole Bible and we realize both of those are consistently taught in the New Testament. If you're trying to live in others first mentality, at best you'll do it randomly apart from Christ and you'll never be able to do it consistently joyfully apart from Christ. But if you're in Christ, everything changes. Joy is found in death to self. Joy is found paradoxically in others first. But you'll get stuck along the way because you'll come across situations. You're going, I know others first always is right, but how do I do it? And then we have this Bible with this description of Jesus's public life and ministry where we look at him and we go, oh, maybe it's not a one for one, but the way he functioned, that was a model for how I approach this relationship both the means and the model. One commentator noted this. He said, in either case, whichever way you translate it, the central theme of verses one through five is the same, that the Philippian church would be of one mind, united by love and humility, and looking out for the interests of others. Church, that's a high bar, and that's the bar that Liberty Bible Church is called to pursue by grace through faith as well. Jesus Christ is the model and the means for the church in Philippi and for us to choose, I'm going to add this word and it might make it harder, to choose joyfully, joyfully to live an others first always kind of life. Now one final note on verse 5. Can you handle it? That was a lot in just verse 5. One final note on verse 5. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves have this mind among yourselves. That is, he's not just talking to Kelly or Rachel or Blake or Pastor Bobby or Pastor Stephen. He is talking to us individually, but he's saying among yourselves. So collectively, you need to have this mind. Interpersonally, you need to live with this mind. Paul is giving these instructions to the church in the New International Version, the NIV, I think is a helpful in understanding it. They translate this verse in your relationships with one another. Just pause for a second. If you just, every time that you got into a little headbutt with somebody in this church or with somebody in your family, a disagreement, if you paused and said, in my relationships with one another, have the mindset of Jesus. How would it change your posture? How would it change your approach? How would it change your deference? Others first, always. And finally, for verse five, um, we will see if we start to live this way. And hear me, can you guys hear? Don't tune out right here. We're not going to do this perfectly, but if we do this consistently and increasingly, uh, I think that we will see at least two things happen. First, as Paul said, this unity of mind in the Philippian church would complete his joy. Verse two, do you remember that? That was surprising. There's so many things Paul could have said would complete his joy. It wasn't the identity of his joy, right? His identity, his joy is found in Christ, but he's saying it will be completed, made more abundant and full if I look at you, the church in Philippi, that by God's grace I planted and I see you having one mind among yourself. If I see you living this way, my joy will be complete and it will be true for us as well that if you live this way and if you see others around you living this way, dying to themselves, being quick to forgive, outdoing one another and showing honor, you will just, in your devotional times, and our gathered worship times, you will just find this inexpressible joy welling up inside of you that is completed through this mentality of Christ and living others first always. And the second thing that we'll do, and it may, this could do more than this, I'm just saying at minimum two things, it will make a watching unbelieving world curious cuz that's not how the world lives let's be real that's not often how the church lives and so if we can live this way humbly and consistently and increasingly a watching world will be curious and when they ask how and why we live this way 1 Peter 3:15 we will have the opportunity to give the answer for the reason for the hope that we have right so good. And that leads us to point number two, this idea of giving a reason for the hope that we, have. why would we live this way? Why would we not live me first? Why would we live others first always? Point number two um, is we get to see why, and we get to see how in the miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of the incarnation. Uh, When we think about verses six through eight in chapter two, uh, I really want to highlight, there's so much there, but I want to highlight the incarnation and specifically a couple of phrases, form of God and form of man or in human form. The incarnation, form of God, form of man. What is the incarnation? If somebody asked you that, would you know how to respond? Put simply, the incarnation is deity- and humanity in the one person of Christ. Let me say that again. The incarnation is deity and humanity in the one person of Christ. Sometimes this incredible reality is summarized simply by saying of Jesus, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Mind blown, right? Remaining what he was, deity, God, He became what he was not, human. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, writes, Jesus did not give up any of his deity when he became man, but he did take on humanity that was not his before. Grudem goes on to write this about the incarnation. See how this sits with you. He writes, it is by far the incarnation, the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that infinite, omnipotent, eternal son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity The most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. So if somebody were to ask you before today, what's the most amazing miracle in all the Bible? I think I probably would have said the resurrection. But when I was studying this, I was going, no, the resurrection is encapsulated in the incarnation, but the incarnation is mind bogglingly beautiful incredible. And I couldn't agree more with Grudem's statement. Before we continue through these last three verses, let me just say that these few verses in Philippians unfold for us uh, some incredibly important theological truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. There have been numerous heresies that have spawned from a misunderstanding, a misreading of this text or other texts that tr- that speak to the same thing. Arianism, which denies the fullness of the deity of Christ, is probably among the most historically prominent. Maybe it's the one that you've heard of. But while we will scratch the surface this morning of the Bible's teaching on the person of Christ in general and the miracle of the incarnation in particular, remember Paul's purpose in writing these verses was not to give the Philippians an opportunity for intellectual superiority. We are supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, but that's not the, the goal is not more knowledge only. And he certainly was not writing this to, spur, to stir up debate on a topic that Paul had no debate about namely the full humanity and the full deity of Christ. Rather, his primary purpose, don't miss this, his primary purpose was to show the Philippian believers the most profound reality they could ever know, Jesus. Again, the Sunday school answer, but so significant. He was trying from different angles to show them Jesus, who he is, what he did, how he lived, and how it's not supposed to stay up here for us, but it's supposed to manifest itself through us. People are supposed to be able to look at Christians and see Christ, and see Christ. Paul was unapologetically helping them to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. He wanted to show them the crea- incredible reality of what Jesus had done, and he was commanding them to live the way Jesus lived, but to live that way by grace in Christ, through faith in Christ. He was showing them how to get low, to live humbly, to give up rather than cling to privileges, and to put others first always. Always. As I was preparing this and as I was studying, I couldn't help but think that there is a lesson for us, not just as Liberty Bible Church, but as American Christians. We are very, and I will put myself in this boat, we are very often quick to claim our rights as individual Americans, to view them as a thing to be grasped, even though our Savior God in the flesh gave up all his rights and privileges. So when you walk out of here today, church family, I hope that you're in awe of the incarnation and more confident to engage in conversation about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But above all of that, my prayer has been that you would walk out of here more motivated, more equipped, and more empowered to put others first always, specifically the others In this room, the church family that in Christ you have covenanted to be a part of. And the only way to do that is to walk out of here more enamored by and more in love with Jesus. Jesus. So let's briefly take a look at what Paul had to say about the God man in these last few verses and how he put others first. First and foremost, Jesus was in the form of God. We see that in verse six, form of God. What does that mean? Well, a couple of commentators, Tony Merida, Francis Chan, write this about the Greek word used here for form. They say it doesn't speak of external appearances or outward shape, but of the essential attributes and inner nature of Jesus. And Paul actually uses the same word in verse 7 to say that Jesus was in the form of a servant. So what does that mean? Why does that matter? Well, Paul is telling his readers, your model your model who is Jesus, look where he started. I want you to picture this in your mind's eye. It's gonna be a little bit, you know, well, it's God, so it's a little bit big. But he says, look at Jesus and look where he started. Where did Jesus start? He started in heaven, right? The beginning was in heaven, But there was no beginning, right? Because he's God and he's always existent. So this verse, this text is pointing us to the incredible reality that Jesus didn't start on earth. He started in heaven. He chose to come to earth, which is unfathomable. But at the same time, it's pointing to the pre-existent nature of of Christ, that he was in the form of God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things were created by him and for him and through him, right? So this mind-boggling reality that Jesus... In the incarnation left heaven. What? But also he had no beginning. He is God. Both of those things are true at the same time. form doesn't here refer to physical appearance, but to actual essence or nature. In the midst of all that, just hear Paul saying this: Jesus was and is God. In the fullness of God, that's Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 is helpful here. The writer says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God and had all the rights and privileges that come with being God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let me give you a picture to try to describe what that means. The last time I had the joy of preaching in Philippians, I got like an amazing verse, Philippians 121. Do you remember that verse? To live is Christ. And I told you that when I asked my wife, I said, how do you explain to live is Christ? She just looked at me and she opened her hands, palms up and said, to live is Christ is to live surrendered to live surrendered. And I think that same picture can be useful here in understanding the incarnation, the reality of Jesus being God but coming to earth. He had the right to hold on to every privilege associated with being God, including to remain in heaven, away from sinful humanity. But he opened his hand. He loosened his grasp and he Came and dwelt among us. Church family, I would submit to you if that truth doesn't literally or at least metaphorically bring you to your knees and make you fall on your face, spend the entire week this week studying the incarnation. It's absolutely incredible. In the incarnation, Jesus did not take an ounce of his deity off, but unfathomably, Put full humanity on. Remember our bottom line of the whole letter? The gospel changes everything. One person, fully God, now also fully man. But you know the story. He didn't come to earth the first time to rule over us. He didn't come in a palace or with much fanfare and prestige. No, he came in a manger, in a stable, in a little town called Bethlehem. Because Paul says he put on the nature, the very essence, not simply of a human, although he did. He's fully human. Don't miss that. But the nature of a servant-hearted human. That's how he came, verse 7 tells us. He started low and he stayed low. Verse 8 says he was found in human form. True. He looked and he walked and he talked and he ate and he was tempted like any human because he was a human yet without sin, but in his full humanity, he continued, he embodied the very essence of a servant. He lived others first always. And what what does verse eight tell us that looked like? Remember, means and model. He continued to live others first always, even being obedient to the point of what? Death. Even death on a cross. Look at verse eight again. Let's read it in full. He humbled himself, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a profound statement. God became human and remained God, and he did it for a reason. And that's not really that mind-blowing, right? That God did something for a reason. But when you stop to ponder the reason that God became man, again, it will just humble you, knock you over when you realize how much God loves you. What was the purpose for which he came. He came so that he could die. Jesus, all the rights and privileges of God, because Jesus is God, came to die for sinners. Came, if you are a Christian, came to die in your place. One of the most beautiful pictures that we see when we think of this model of Jesus in the New Testament is probably familiar to you. It's of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, John chapter 13. Powerful, humble, even reproducible. Now, I doubt that any of you have gone around washing other people's feet lately. Um, maybe you have. But, but it's reproducible in the sense when we look to the model, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, we can find things in our community, in our, in our life group, in our church um, that exemplify that same get low servant heart right? And so we can follow Jesus's lead on that. But this foot washing moment, beautiful as it was, was not the pinnacle of Jesus's modeling humble service. Jesus would define service in an almost unthinkable way. Jesus would willingly, don't miss that word, no no coercion, no forced. Jesus would willingly go and be hung on a Roman cross. He was utterly humiliated. To be killed on a cross was atrocious from the perspective of the Gentiles. It was a curse from the perspective of the Jews, but in reality, it was even worse than that. Because on that cross, the full weight of the wrath of God was poured out on sinless Jesus. Unbelievable. I quote this scripture a lot to you, but I'm not going to stop. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sometimes when I'm preparing a sermon, I just write down what pops into my brain. Sometimes I delete it later. (laughs) But when I was writing this down, it just, out of my guts came amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then when I was practicing the sermon, right after that, I just was thinking, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather In humility, value others above yourself. Guys, I need us to picture the full scope of this. Picture that Jesus, or picture what Paul wanted us to see, what he wanted the Philippians to grasp, that Jesus is God, always has been, always will be, but in the greatest miracle ever enacted, God became human. He always will be. God became human. He always will be, and he remained God. He always will be. He took nothing off. He put humanity on so he could change everything. The gospel changes everything. And don't miss this. That's what this was. Verses six through eight, that's the gospel. There's more that could be said, but it changed everything. So let me see if I could attempt to wrap this up concisely. A couple things I want you to remember. One, the incarnation matters. The incarnation matters. Over the years, we humans have tried to fit God into a box. If you've ever had a seven-year-old like I do, you're tempted to try to fit God in a box to answer her questions, right? Am I the only one? No, okay, well, trying to explain things like the Trinity, you're trying to just shrink it down and make them understand, which is normal, and we have to help people do that. But we have to be careful with that, and because some of these things about God are not easy to explain. And when it comes to the person of Christ, many heresies, as I mentioned earlier, have cropped up, specifically related to verse 6, though he was in the form of God. In verse 7, he emptied himself, Um, And we need to be on the lookout for these heresies when people try to talk about Jesus but diminish his deity, or when they try to say they believe in Jesus but remove his humanity. Why? Because he needed to be human. That's what qualified him. Being human and living a sinless life is what qualified him to die in our place. But he needed to be God. Because the only way that you can conquer the consequences of sin and satisfy the full wrath of God is if you are God, overcoming those consequences through the resurrection, right? So if you ever are tempted, or if you're ever around somebody that's trying to diminish one of those things, you don't have to be a jerk. Just let your gospel guard go up a little bit, listen, and then open up your Bible, maybe to Philippians chapter 2, and show them the beauty of the incarnation. It doesn't make full sense in our brains, but it doesn't have to make full sense. We can understand it more, but it doesn't have to make full sense. God God did this, and it's absolutely powerful, absolutely powerful. A little homework assignment, if you want it. You don't have to, I won't grade it. Um, but this has been a struggle, taking away Jesus' deity, adding, you know, taking away his humanity, uh, coming up with different ideas. And so in AD 451, there was a church council called. We won't go into all the details, but in that they were hashing out what do we believe about the person of Christ? What does the Bible teach about the person of Christ? And we how can we consolidate it down? And they came out with this uh, statement called the Chalcedonian Definition. I'm not gonna read it for you now, but it's actually pretty short, maybe a little dense, but, but short. And really helpful, really helpful. So maybe if you so choose in your life groups this week, uh, read the Chalcedonian definition. Talk through some of your questions about it. um, What makes sense, what doesn't. Or maybe just in your own time with the Lord, read through it. Um, And then go to your Bible and see where that comes from. So the incarnation matters. But again, the last thing I wanna make sure you walk away with is that the point of this passage, as rich as it is theologically, the point of this passage is so practical. It's others first, always. Christians live like Christ, and Christ lived others first, always. Paul was writing this to Christians. I taught this idea to the TNTers, the older kids in Awana, a few weeks back, and I was telling them all the ways we live like Christ, and then when I got done, um, I think they were still paying attention, and I said, and you can't do it. You can't do any of this apart from Christ. And the same is true for us. Paul was writing to the Christians, the saints in Christ Jesus. And if you're not a Christian and you're here today, there's good news for you. You can become a Christian today if you will repent of your me firstness and surrender to Jesus first as Lord of your life. If you will repent from your sin and trust in what Jesus did in the incarnation The Bible says you can be saved. You can be a Christian. And not only will you be saved, this will blow your mind, you will receive the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit will come and live inside you. He is the means by which you can live the other's first always life. And let me tell you from experience, it's a hard life. I screw it up daily, probably, hourly, I don't know, a lot. But when we live this type of life consistently and increasingly, hear me church, hear me, it's not a burden. It's not a burden. It's a joy. It will actually serve to complete your joy. Let me close by finishing Paul's hymn. We'll, we'll preach on this later. Um, but I just wanted to read it to you. Jesus got low for us. We saw that in our text this week. He left heaven, came to earth, took on humanity, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. Verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this church that by your grace you've allowed me to come and join with and live this out um, the best that we can together. Father, I pray that as we live this others first always mentality, that every time we start to do it in our own strength, God, either ourselves or someone in our community of believers would remind us of the gospel, that we can't do this in our own strength, that we have to do it through the Holy Spirit every time we're stuck and unsure what to do in a messy, broken relationship. Father God, would you allow us to remember the gospel? Look at how Jesus navigated betrayal, neglect, confusion, hurt words, all these things. He's modeled for us how to respond. And would you help us to endure, Father? God, thank you for the incarnation and all that it means that we know, and all that it means that we have yet to learn. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: When we fail at humility, and we will fail, let us readily admit we failed and confess that to God and to the person that we failed with. Let us confess it and desperately see our need to admit it when we are confronted by it. Hey, that was really selfish. Hey, what you did, that was really looking out for your own interest and no one else's. We need to look to Jesus, not just to our sin and reminding ourselves of our hearts that so are so prone to want to pursue sin still, but we need to look to Jesus, who not only could do this, live selflessly, Look to others as more significant than himself. He could do this, but he did do it. He has already accomplished this work perfectly. Let me close with a passage from 1 Corinthians 5. Verses 5 through 7, it says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We've seen that to be true in the gospel. Let us continue to see that again and again as we rehearse the glory of the gospel. And let us draw us to treasuring ourselves less than others and continuing to see how God might meet our needs and the needs of others would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are grateful this morning for the work of the gospel that calls us to yourself, that gives us new life in Christ, the glorious gospel of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection for us. And God, let, it, let that message of the gospel continue to transform us, even the way we view ourselves this morning. Would you continue to draw us to seeing Jesus, the one who, has we'll look at in the weeks to come, who humbled himself all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross for us, and may we humbly be willing to sacrifice and serve others, treasuring ourselves less that we might ultimately treasure Christ and them more. Father, would you give us a heart that desires to love you above all else, to glorify you and enjoy you forever, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Would you continue to grant us grace this morning as we sing and as we worship? And would by your Holy Spirit, you continue to uh, take these words of your, your word of Scripture and plant them deep in us, and do the work in us that you desire to do through it. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name.